0: You are now about to take a journey with professional advisors Ken Smith and Ethan Broga on Empirical Investing Radio. To connect with Empirical Investing Radio, please call 1-866-472-5790. Fasten your seatbelts. You're going to need them. Just because the hosts have a sense of humor does not mean their advice won't change your life.
1: Good afternoon and welcome to Empirical Investing Radio. I'm Ken Smith. Sitting next to Ethan Broca. Good afternoon, Ethan, as usual. Hey, Ken. Good to see you. Good to be here. This show is designed to share with you prudent investing and financial planning ideas, the combination of which we form to call wealth management to help you make a lifetime of smarter financial decisions. That's our mission here. And we love to hear from you. So if you do want to call in, Ethan's going to give some contact information shortly. Uh, please do give us a call. And uh, today, Ethan, on our show, I thought we would talk um, about a few things that are in mind that that fall into your area of expertise. Sounds good. Uh, Some things about 401K and IRA changes that are coming in 2013. All right. Um, I thought we could talk a little bit about, uh, along that uh, thread, um, some beneficiary um, designation things that you want to be aware of. Okay. uh, Mistakes that you want to avoid. And uh I wanted to start though the conversation um with a little discussion on, on uh you know getting advice and uh the different types and this idea of fiduciary. From time to time I like to revisit that. I know we've talked about it a lot on the show. Sure. Historically speaking, but if you're just tuning in we're gaining new listeners rapidly. That's what I understand. And so I want to make sure that everyone's always up to date and talk a little bit about um how to get how to get advice or help and some thoughts in an ever, ever changing and rapidly um, changing landscape with, in terms of uh, the regulations and uh, the oversight of our industry.
2: Mm-hmm. It's
1: tough to kind of keep track of everything that's going on. So I've got a couple articles here that I thought we could talk about. Sounds good. Sounds, sounds pretty good. Yeah. You want to go ahead and give out our contact information, Ethan? Uh, sure. Yeah. Well, uh, as usual, this is a
2: live recording i no, sorry, live show today, just getting around. Uh, if you'd like to join the show and perhaps have a question or, or uh, something of that nature, feel free to give us a call at 866-472-5790. Or if you prefer, uh, email is fine, too. Uh, and we can be reached at contact at empiradio.com.
1: Yeah, send it on your typewriter first.
2: <laughs> <laughs> if you have a typewriter, I guess that might not work.
1: You know, put your thoughts down. Oh, sure. We appreciate it. And uh, a lot of times we get questions and then we just cover them throughout the program. So we don't have to call you out specifically, but a lot of the questions we talk about, either from time to time, are actual questions we get. Sure, that's right. So you can feel confident if you want those to be sent anonymously. Um, Right. We're happy to do that. That's fine. In terms of helping our listeners out there, helping people, um, you've been working a lot and we've been talking a lot about retirement. Mm-hmm. And I think it's a good reason. It's it's a big issue. Sure. And there are a lot of people that are contemplating how they're going to do that. And uh, I, I thought maybe you could talk a little bit about specifically if, if someone were to say who would be ideal for us to help in that scenario. Yeah. What what does that look like? Yeah, in my experience. Um, the, Why you know, would I call empirical yeah. for help?
2: There's a a type of client that I think matches up with our. Our specialties, our strengths, very, very well. We we do a lot of things very well, but in terms of the maximum amount of value, I think, that uh, we bring to um, an individual situation, probably we'd be those. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, Entering retirement, I'd say if I had to assign an age, I'd say retirement age between 55 and probably 65. That's the sort of range of uh, typical retirements, retirees rather. And the reason for that is, in terms of why why I think that's a good good space, is because the time that you are planning to retire, things change dramatically. And there are several things that you should do or in terms of being ideal that you would do early on in retirement that could really set the tone for the rest of your retirement. Things like tax strategies. Managing taxes, particularly early in retirement, is a big thing that can add wealth significantly over the course of the rest of your lifetime if you handle it correctly. You know, um, Planning for Social Security. Not just saying, hey, I'm going to take it at 62 or, hey, I'm just going to take it at 66, but, hey, what's the best method of taking it? based on the fact that, hey, maybe you're married. Maybe you have not just one earnings record to consider, but two earnings records to consider. And how do, how do those switching strategies apply in your situation based on your needs, you know, early in retirement versus later in retirement? Um, and obviously, I, I didn't mention it, but that goes hand-in-hand hand with things like doing asset management, doing investments, making sure that those are structured in a way that is most most suitable for your situation as you enter and then as you go through retirement. Um, so to me, it's it's really those folks, people who are 55 to 65. Uh, usually, you're married um, because there's some different tax strategies and also social security strategies that uh, can be implemented on your behalf um, if you're if you're married that otherwise you don't have available. Right. Um, so it's really the folks in, in that situation. If you have um, say half a million dollars in a, a tax deferred account or more, or half a million dollars in in a taxable account or more, that that's helps. That helps. So usually, a uh, million dollars or more in total net worth would be an ideal. Uh, ideal target to start with anyways, in terms of executing these types of strategies for retirement purposes?
1: I think if you were out there, I mean, it's important to ask yourself a lot of questions or get somebody to help you ask that about what you really want to accomplish through retirement, because all the areas that you just mentioned are areas in which decisions need to be made that can have a, have a, a large effect on, on your financial outcome.
2: Yeah, and I would say this. Uh, not making the decision is a decision. And if you don't make a choice, one's going to be made for you. And most likely, it's not going to be the ideal situation. Without proper thought and, and planning going into it, you're not very likely to stumble upon the right decision, and the best
1: decision for you. Right. It takes planning and effort to figure it out. So I encourage you to give us a call if that's if that is the situation that you're currently in. Give us a call here at the firm, and uh, we'd be happy to at least talk to you about these issues. You recorded the presentation that you've been doing. that kind of runs through just five of the key issues that that people in retirement are making. And I believe, Simon, you're going to be getting that up on our website, on the link, empiricalfs.com, where where it will appear. Yep, we're going to put some final
2: uh, finishing touches on that and – Once it's through compliance, we'll post it up there next week or so, is my guess.
1: Okay. Well, I would encourage you to check that out. All right, Ethan. Where are we at here? By the way, the market was up um, quite a bit today. It looks like 136 points on the Dow. Wow. Um, Yeah.
2: Broad market up, too. It looks like uh, small caps up a lot, international up a lot, emerging broadly-based rally, it looks like.
1: And if we it's been a little while since we looked at the year to date numbers on some of the broader asset classes, but year to date ending yesterday doesn't include today's close. Um international real estate still is up twenty nine percent for the year. Uh, year to date, large US value companies, um again in the we're using a dimensional fund to, uh, to just to track that for this purpose. Eighteen over to eighteen percent. And uh, uh Emerging markets, small company, up over 15% year-to-date. So even with some of the pullback we've had, Uh uh, there are some areas of the global markets that have done quite well. And if you're asked what what is unique about the way we develop portfolios for clients uh, is we don't just have one portfolio, Ethan, that we use for everybody. Uh, We actually have created numerous models in which we can customize these portfolios along the lines of return and risk, how much risk is a client or a person willing to take, and matching that to an appropriate time horizon, how much time do they have to keep the money invested, Mm -hmm. to afford them different levels of return opportunity. Um, And it's along these very unique investment asset classes that I just don't see most people buying out on their own. Yeah, I agree with that. Now, we've been doing this, these types of portfolios now for almost well well over 10 years um, Mm -hmm. down to very specific, unique classes like including international real estate or small international value. And I was meeting with one of the um, ETF providers earlier today and I was commenting about as you see more and more of these products finally coming out in the public arena because most of the investments we've been using are institutional. You can only get them through an advisor like Like empirical, for example. Mm -hmm. Um, but more and more, they're now finally coming along and saying, Hey, these are, these are reasonable investment asset classes that, that advisors and individuals out there should be getting access to. Uh, and it just surprised me the sheer number of, of investment products that were created that uh, we've talked about that really don't, aren't very unique and um, really don 't have a meaningful place in a portfolio, and how long it 's taken the broader industry to come around mm-hmm. to getting some of those unique investment classes that fit in a port in what our opinion a diversified global portfolio uh, that actually add return that explain where return come from for a given level of risk that you 're taking so it 's very exciting to me to see in a particular year where that idea of is is this diversification working? Yes, it is. And it works really well in up markets as well as down markets, um, and and are including these unique investment asset classes. Um, is that adding value into a portfolio context? And yes, it is. Yeah, no question about Far it. Far more than you know, the last few shows. If you go to the archive and you hear us talking about the Jim Cramer paper, um, that I hope Simon's putting a link. On the website too, market madness: the case of Mad Money, and the, these uh, these academics did a study on his advice. We talked about it, I think, last week. Yeah, and how bad it really is. It does, it's not very helpful, among other approaches. Just overwhelming research. Yet, ninety percent of the market, um, in terms of numbers of people investing, it, it is still pursuing some form of, of these types of advice. Um, Again, our part of our existence hopefully is to change that. So the way we're looking at and building these portfolios, I think what if you say what is unique about it is we're aligning our clients or aligning yours as an investor, and we'd love to help you do this. Your specific unique situation with regard to how you feel about risk, the type of return, helping you figure out what kind of return what do you, you. actually
2: need, need exactly right.
1: And how do you take the market and stay away from turning it into a casino and turning it into a place where you can invest and expect a rate of return on your capital um, for the least amount of risk? And we do the same thing. We've got multiple ways of looking at constructing a fixed income portfolio and then mixing those together. Growth investments, not just stocks, but other asset classes that we'd categorize as growth investments, and mixing those together with more conservative or risk-reducing or volatility management investments, right. um, doing it in a very tax-cost-friendly way. On top of it,
2: right? You know, I like—I've been fond of saying that if—if if you as an individual investor out there, you—you you, you had the resources and the desire and the time, frankly, to figure out how best to invest. You know, read through the academic journals. See what's been said on, on the topic for the, in the years past, the decades past, whatever the academics said in this area. Uh, that's the job we're doing for you. We, we've done we've done all the work for you. We can t- relieve a significant burden from you.
1: Well, that'll lead us in when we come back from this break. We've got to take to this discussion about what a fiduciary does for someone. And the article I want to go over is called "Not All Advisors Are the Same." How can you tell the difference? By M- Maria Elena Lagamazzino, I think. We'll be right back. We've got to take a quick
0: break. The business community's first choice in Internet talk radio, Voice America Business Network.
3: Our mission at Empirical is to provide clients with the most effective, unbiased investment and financial planning advice available. Empirical is changing the way investment advice is delivered by striving to put our clients' interests first. Call us now to get started with a no-cost, no-obligation discovery process. The number again is 1-800-923-4307. Or you can begin this process on our website at empiricalfs.com.
2: Do you want to know what's really going on these days?
0: each Thursday at noon Eastern and 9 a.m. Pacific time. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1 866 472 5790. That's 1 866 472 5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan.
2: Okay, we're back on uh, Empirical Investing Radio, your co-host, Ethan Broga, alongside Ken Smith here. Again, if you'd like to uh, join the program today, feel free to give us a call at 866-472-5790, or you can reach us via email at contact at EMPI Radio. And I think, uh, Ken, for this section, we were going to revisit a topic we've talked about in the past, and that is uh, talking about the
1: fiduciary standard, right? Yeah, the article that was uh, passed to me isn't a new article. It was a couple of years old. But it was out of the journal Wealth Management. Hmm, great. Um one of the places that we actually go to find research on investing. And um I'll do my best to abbreviate it without reading it word for word, Ethan, but I just wanted to set the context of um we're we're big, big believers and fans of people getting advice and getting quality and in investment and financial planning advice. Uh in my view, they they need to go hand-in-hand, hand, and I wouldn't accept any investment advice outside of planning. Um doesn't mean things like, well, you should be diversified. Yeah, those are great maxims, right? But in terms of having someone manage my investments or you managing your own investments, it should be within the context of, of a financial plan sure. um, and somebody who has the expertise to do that, which takes quite a bit of time. And if you put the time in to do that, you should be in that profession, is my opinion. By the time you put in enough study to be able to do a lot of these things consistently on your own, you're putting in enough effort, staying abreast of all the, the techniques, where it doesn't make sense it, to do it. Be like learning to build an, air, an airplane engine, um, right? Right. Yeah. At the point where you you've been able to do that proficiently you might want to be in that industry and not just be doing it for free in your garage to save some money on, on flights. Right. Um, so anyway, the, the title of this article is not all advisors are the same. How can you tell? Um, and you know, I, she makes a good point here in the beginning, Ethan, that over the last dozen years in wealth management, uh, there's a lot of change, but the change is a lot of times going behind the scenes, behind the public eye. And sometimes it happens slow and she, likens it to the frog story where a frog hops into the pot in the cool water and then it slowly raises the temperature. And by the time he realizes he's being cooked, it's too late, right? That's how things have gone in our industry behind the scenes. And I thought it was a unique take. She explains a little bit. You go back to the Great Depression and you had laws start to appear about regulating banks and brokerage companies uh, and three separate Basically, three separate schemes came into play. You had banks that were taking deposits and making loans. You had brokers who were creating and selling transactions. And then they identified a third group, which were advisors, investment advisors. And those advisors are typically managing client investment assets and giving them advice. But what's interesting is it was in the 90s um, when the laws that were separating banks and brokers got repealed. And bank, banks, 1999, actually banks and brokers suddenly were allowed to merge, and they did and crazy, as you know. Right? They were merging to 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 pick up. You know, basically, I think it was a goldmine of, hey, we have these assets, and you still see it, right? Yeah. Um, we see a lot in the accounting industry right now, uh, in the last decade or so. Uh, it just doesn't really get talked about in this context, but. Banks and brokers allowed to merge, and they did. And so, brokerage rules in a brokerage mindset—now, this is her viewpoint—were um, different than that of a bank, the banking traditional banking mindset. After these earlier regulations were put in, and in a brokerage mindset, her view, she kind of puts it in a context of a, of a strong sales culture, um, and that sales culture swept through banks, kind of overtaking what she refers to as their fiduciary culture. Uh, And in effect, you know, these separate activities were advising families from the family's perspective um, versus selling investment products uh, became merged into one entity. And many wealth management institutions blurred the distinction by using the term advisor for individuals who are actually engaged in the activity of selling investment products. I've noticed that too over the years that big firms constantly changing the names of their um, representatives, as you would call oh, them oh yes, right, right, to make them sound more trustworthy, I mean I yeah. to believe there's some kind of marketing research going on within these firms um, yeah I, very few people I come across now refer to themselves as stock brokers, right, but somehow that became a negative connotation right, so even if you 're in that environment and you are selling i don't i 'm not clear that a lot of them are running around going hey i 'm a stock Broker, yeah. um, now they are investment counselors, or re- you know, registered representatives was a thing in the past. Now I don't see that as much. Anyway, adv- advocacy and, and fiduciary obligations to clients were trumped by the push and se- push to sell more products to clients, and as a result, make more money uh, from clients, not for clients. Ethan, the key word there's from clients, right? And uh, although many private bankers sincerely intend to put clients' interests first, it has been her personal – Maria's personal experience here that um, the new sales-oriented business models trumped uh, words and good intentions. And I think we've seen that as well. That's fair. Uh, there are good people within side of organizations that have this sales-type culture or whatever. And as honest and hardworking as they are um, – their recommendations or the ultimate investment products seem to be slanted, um, in a way that ne- isn't always necessarily putting the investor first. And, uh, the real issue, the muddy middle here is advice that is in a client's best interest and in sales of products. to customers, uh, are not the same. And in many respects, incompatible. It's like comparing apples and o- oranges. Mm-hmm. Um, And I'm just like if you had to choose two different, uh, to contrast between different types of advisors, it would be these fiduciary and suitability. And so traditionally, um, understanding these two words will give you the power to understand who is your advocate and who is selling to you. And the differences between fiduciary and suitability are as profound as the differences between apples and oranges. The Advice given, uh, Advice given, activities performed on behalf of a client, the standards to which the advisor is held, all vary between fiduciary and suitability. And in essence, they are completely different business models, both providing advice. You may read uh, that in the upcoming financial reforms, there's a movement to extend fiduciary standard of conduct to brokers and insurance companies. Do you know where they are in all of that, Ethan, by the way? It's still being kicked around as far as I understand. There's no no
2: clear outcome as to what what direction uh, they're going to go for sure um, yet. So right now, nothing's changed as of today.
1: Well, traditionally, investment advisors have been bound to adhere to this idea of fiduciary standard. In order to, to abide by those principles, you have to do the following. Put the client's interest ahead of the interest of the advisor. Act with prudence, that is with skill, care, diligence, and good judgment of a professional do not mislead clients, provide conspicuous, full and fair disclosure of all important facts, avoid conflicts of interest, fully disclose and fairly manage uh, in the client's favor unavoidable con- conflicts. In addition, registered investment advisors have a duty to seek to control expenses, such as brokerage, brokerage commissions, on behalf of the client. Now the suit- suitability standard is a lower level of conduct that brokers and salespeople require to meet and the one that most private banks are now regulated in. Again, this is in 2010. Um, It's a sales standard uh, that requires only what they sell is a type of security that is not unsuitable for your goals. For example, this stock fund versus another stock fund, if your goal is equity market exposure. But under the suitability standard, Ethan, they can sell you the fund that pays them the most compensation with the highest expenses, even if there is another one with reasonable expenses that would be better for you, and that's perfectly lead- legal under this suitability or sales standard. In other words, they don't have to put your interests ahead of their own or their firms. They don't have to disclose what they and the firm make on transactions. They are supposed to disclose conflicts, but don't have to avoid them or manage conflicts in your best interests. Under the suitability standard, it can be very difficult for clients to understand and interpret any potential conflicts of interest.
2: Uh, it's impossible, <laughs> nearly. Uh, I haven't talking to people about that uh, in the past. None of that really comes up because I don't even know what's going on. I don't know the questions to ask to, that would expose those types of things going on. Most of the time.
1: Well, what I think is shocking here, Ethan, and then we'll op- op- take a break in a couple of minutes and then come back and open this up to a little discussion, is one security analyst had projected at this time um, that if a fiduciary standard of conduct were to extend to brokers, it would have cost a firm like, say, Morgan Stanley smith party as much as $300 million a year. So changing their model. I'll bet that's low. Yeah. <laughs> to be honest with you. Yeah. Changing their model to say, hey, now we have to put the client's interest in front of ours would cost their profitability $300 million of profit. In one year. In a particular year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in a single year. Um, it makes a lot of sense why some of these older firms, the only changes that they make Or when they absolutely have to because they're losing so much client revenue. Mm -hmm. They're losing share to independent advisors like, uh, like Empirical, for example, as a whole, the traditional wirehouse, investment banking firms like this. When it comes to helping individual investors, um, they are, are, are losing growth share. They're not growing, um, or expanding their, their touch there. Um, and it's only when they absolutely have to, kicking and screaming, because who wants to take a $300 million hit in a single year, right? Yeah. If, if they can slowly be, you know, drug into, and, and in the meantime, like we said, most of this is going on behind the scenes. Um, so the average person, you know, because it doesn't change the fact that we're saying the average person needs some help. They should get help, even if they have some a, a pretty good amount of knowledge, the the time and the energy and the emotional impact of doing trying to manage um, a significant portfolio on your own is, is pretty difficult. Sure. It shouldn't be done anyways in isolation outside of the other areas of tax and retirement planning, and estate planning, and and asset protection. And some of the other things that need to be done. I would agree. Yeah. So when we come back, let's take a quick break, Ethan. Let's finish on this topic and try to put some light into how how you would make decisions about finding someone to give you. a fiduciary-type advice, and then move on to the, the last two segments on the retirement um, changes that you should be aware of. Sounds good. We'll be right back.
0: The Business Community's First Choice in Internet Talk Radio, Voice America Business Network. We spend 70% of our week in the office. What is the difference between enjoying your job and enduring it? The number one motivator is a positive work environment, and that's where Real Recognition Radio comes in. Join your hosts, Roy Saunderson and S. Max Brown, as they take a look at the positive factors of the workplace, such as employee rewards, recognition, incentives, and much more. Tune in to Real Recognition Radio. Tuesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on the Voice America Business Channel.
3: Are you an individual investor looking for a trusted financial advisor? Or are you a financial professional looking to connect with a world-class wealth management firm? My name is Simon Liu, portfolio manager with Empirical Wealth Management, inviting you to contact us at 1-800-923-4307. That's 1-800-923-4307. Or visit our website at EmpiricalFS.com. That's E-M-P-I-R-I-C-A-L-F-S dot com.
0: We hear it and read about it every day in the news. Stock prices plunging, home prices receding, and unemployment growing. How can you preserve and increase your wealth in this kind of economy? Tune in to turning hard times into good times with host Jay Taylor. Jay will explain the decline of our monetary system and the economy and will give you winning investment ideas and the tools to protect and increase your wealth. Turning Hard Times into Good Times with Jay Taylor can be heard Tuesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Voice America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan.
2: We are back, Empirical Investing Radio. you co-host, Ethan Broca, and some nice sound effects there, it looks like. If you'd like to join the program, feel free to give us a call at 866-472-5790, or you can always reach us uh, via email as well at contact at empiradio.com. And just before the last break, we were just wrapping up uh, the discussion about the fiduciary standard of care when it comes to investment advisors versus your sort of um, regular financial consultant or or, uh, old, old broker. At the old old firms, anyways, and can uh, we were going to wrap up this part of the discussion?
1: Yeah, I mean, we were saying that um, the article that I was citing here in the journal from the Journal of Wealth um, was talking about this is in 2010. But if they had changed, you know, one of the major, just a single brokerage firm, Morgan Stanley Smith Barney, it would cost them 300 million dollars, and basically, all, what you know. We were saying, is to put it another way, if a firm had to act in the best interest of its clients (laughs) under the fiduciary standard of conduct rather than suitability, it would earn that much less because certain practices that are acceptable under the suitability standard, which includes taking fees from parties other than clients, distributing products that are manufactured by the firm itself, would be less viable. Uh, In addition, they'd have to be disclosed in writing, and clients would be less accepting of these practices Given the inherent conflicts of interest and i don 't think there's necessarily anything wrong with a company having its own line of investments, ethan okay because i 've grappled with that over seventeen years now to figure this out now currently we don't have in our firm any proprietary investments, but our strategy is proprietary in that we created it right we're we 're putting together different investments um, to get to a portfolio for a person to reach their goals. Whether that's inside of a wrapper that we call the empirical fund or we're buying them individually is less of concern to me. But what is concerning is if we were making these components and charging a higher fee, somehow the client paid a, paid a, high, a higher fee or the fee uh, that our advisors or employees got was somehow increased as a result of making a recommendation for a client to put their money in a proprietary fund. Mm -hmm. So the fact that Smith, Barney, Merrill Lynch, or anybody, Fidelity, Schwab, has a fund, their own funds, isn't necessarily the issue for me. It's how are the people recommending those funds being compensated? Is it any differently? Is there any pressure? Is there any evaluation system internally that would say, hey, you're doing a better job? If more people are investing in these funds, mm-hmm. or a not so good job, right? It, it wouldn't even necessarily have to be a direct tit for debt. Here's a dollar every time. But if that was ever part of the review process of an advisor inside of any of the, any company, that would be a difficult thing for me to, to feel that you're putting, you have the objective ability to put the, the client's best interest right. first. If, if the product is generating, um, a higher amount of revenue for the company. So, hey, if I can give you advice independent, the company can give advice, be paid to give that advice, and they're on equal par, whether you use a proprietary investment product or a group of investments from outside. To me, I don't have an issue then with that because maybe the investment product that they created uh, was something that was needed. It wasn't out, available in the marketplace, so, what's in the best client, the client's best interest would be to create that product or investment, so that the client could get access to it. You know what I'm saying? I think so. A time where there were no index funds, as an example. Hmm. Um. It, I don't think it would be inappropriate for a company say like Vanguard, who created the first retail fund, if they were giving advice back then to say, hey, we recommend you to be in our Vanguard index because there was no other index fund to invest in. No alternative, right. See what I'm saying? There's no conflict there, mm-hmm. um, particularly if the fee that they charged to give advice didn't change. You know, And one way you could do that is to say, hey, well, if I'm charging 1% to give someone ongoing investment advice, if I create my own fund, um, I will deduct the cost of that fund from the management fee. Hmm. Right, but it's a little bit weird if I'm charging the one percent. I continue to do that, and I was able to somehow charge the additional expense of the fund. So right. I'm basically double dipping, right? Sure. Um, and it's not completely fair, I think, to say, well, yeah, but that fund is still the same expense as in other funds. So what's the difference? Right? Well, the difference is the company would be making more money under that arrangement, right? Right. Um, so. I think that's a little bit of how I would view that, that it's not necessarily bad that any company have its own particular investment strategies. I would ask, though, if there's 20 of the same exact strategy already out there, does that make a lot of sense? And I would follow the the money path in that case. You know what I mean? Um, So to conclude this discussion, her advice was, how can you make sure an advisor is working for you as your advocate? Rather than in their own firm's interest, do a fiduciary review, ask the questions, uh, and get answers to each of these questions in full, and get them in writing. And I think that's unique, Ethan. Right. Getting answers in writing, because it's very easy, even the, whatever we're calling them, she gives a list of the names, the registered representative, sales associate, broker, private banker, whatever they are, it's easy for them not to fully understand all of this. Um, they may not even be doing it to be deceptive Uh, but it's a whole different story when you say hey can I get this in writing are you a registered investment advisor under the investment act of 1940 will you be working for your firm for yourself or me as my advocate at all times be interesting to see that in writing (laughs) sure Uh, are you obligated to put my interest before your own or your firms at all times as a fiduciary to me I don't think most of the traditional brokerage firms or banks or warehouses that are acting in this would even allow anything in writing to walk out the door. No. Uh, I don't think so. That has anything to that extent, right? right? Do you promise to provide conspicuous full and fair disclosure of all important facts relating to the product or recommendations? Don't 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 you as a client or a customer deserve that? Don't you deserve full and fair disclosure of important facts?
2: Yeah, material information.
1: I, I am shocked that this this is 2010. It's still a debate, right? Yeah. Um, and I think that's why it's important. Um, oh, let me finish last two. Will you disclose conflicts of interest? Will you fully disclose in writing all fees, compensation, expenses that you or your firm receive from me? And who else is paying you to recommend products I buy from you? I don't think you'd get through half of this list before if you, if you actually were going to stick to this. Sure. Before you had to walk out of many of these places. I bet you're right. So I like it. Good job, Maria. And the other concluding word of caution I would say is, regardless of what happens, the industry has had a pretty good way of, you create a set of regulations and then you figure out, what's the minimum thing we have to do to comply to these? It's a mindset that you need to be looking for, I think. A culture, and that's what even last week when we were talking about... Um, I think it was one of the major banks being um, sued or or having to pay for uh, falsely representing the the mortgage securities. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Bank of America. I think it was. And Wells Fargo had the Um, same thing recently. I'm saying there's a culture here, and it's one in which we're always trying to get around what's the minimum amount of regulation um, so that we can increase profitability and i think it's possible ethan otherwise we wouldn't be doing this mm-hmm. i think it's possible to create a, a company that you have the highest level of expertise the highest you're, you're trying to get and achieve um the the education the credentials to help people and to put their interests first and still be pr- profitable how much is enough and i always respect um john Bogle in that respect, the Vanguard. And he said, how much is enough? You know, I don't, I don't need to die with a hundred billion dollars. Um, how much is enough where I'm not going to compromise my ethics? You know, where I, I can go to sleep at night and feel good about helping people in a fair way. So. Thank you, thank you very much. Thank you very much. <laughs> All right, Ethan. You want to talk about uh we got a couple minutes before we get to our last segment here, but let's start at uh the beneficiaries or you want to go over some of these changes and that are coming up for four hundred one K and IRAs and
2: I could go so, either way. I have them both here, so
1: I bet you could. So why don't you decide? All right,
2: let's look at this uh beneficiary information. All right,
1: let's do it. So where did you get this article? Well, this is out of the investment news, and uh, I figured this is something that you're very well aware of, so you might even have a lot more to add to this. It's possible. But they just coupled together uh, six big mistakes that advisors report. Um, they see when when investors are making beneficiary uh, designation decisions. Yep. And the idea of beneficiary is here you're – you're choosing someone, right, Ethan? You want to explain that, what a beneficiary is and what context this applies to?
2: Yeah. Typically, um, it's easier, to think, to think of uh, beneficiaries on things like 401Ks or IRA accounts, um, usually on the application, in fact, for an IRA account. One of the things you have to provide is the beneficiary information. So if something happens to you, you, you pass away, where is the money to go? Is it going to go to your, your spouse or is it going to go to your, your, your kids or to your state? Or where, where is it going to go afterwards? Um, that's usually one of the bits of information that custodians will ask for when you open up an IRA account, for example. So the idea of ben- naming your beneficiaries is important.
1: And often we start our interview process with clients, new clients, with, do you have an estate plan? Um, so you have a wheel in that plan, yeah, right? Or a lot of times there's a trust. and Sure. Uh, this is a little unique because it it's a form of... Uh, Deciding where you're at, this, your asset will go, it's separate. Can be separate from that those documents. That's right.
2: So you, let's say you have a will and you have an estate plan. Maybe it's you just did it yesterday. But if you have a, a beneficiary designated on your IRA, for example, or a 401k, that information supersedes what's in the will. So let's say you're 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 in a second marriage now, and you open it, you had an IRA initially when you under your first marriage. Well, maybe you want to change the beneficiary on that IRA because now you have to even though you 've done it in your will hasn 't taken effect on the account itself. Mm-hmm. You have to physically do that otherwise it'll be what 's in the, on the IRA itself as beneficiary
1: will supersede what 's in the will so it doesn 't matter that in your will you said hey i 've decided to disinherit this person or that person correct what is on this um, listed in this designation supersedes that, and that will be what it is so it 's right. important then. To understand that and make those changes at the same time, you're updating your will.
2: Right. There are are a couple of benefits of having a named beneficiary as well. Uh, One of those is that um, anything that's named as beneficiary avoids the probate process. So let's say you didn't name a named beneficiary. Yes. Well, then it would be subject to the settling of your estate. It'd have
1: to go through probate. In other words. Okay. Uh, Which you know you may or may not want to have happen. Well, Ethan. I think we have to take a break. So let's take a quick break. We'll come back. We're going to talk about mistakes to avoid surrounding your IRA and beneficiaries and a little bit about some of the changes in retirement accounts. We'll be right back.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network.
3: Time here on VoiceAmerica.com.
0: When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are listening to Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and co-host Ethan Broga. To call into the program with a question or comment, please dial 1-866-472-5790. That's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to contact at empiradio.com. Now, back to Ken and Ethan.
1: Okay, welcome back to the show. It's our last segment, Empirical Investing Radio, broadcasting high atop the Empirical Tower in downtown Seattle. The not-so-lovely weather we're experiencing, but not much, much better than uh, yeah. what's going on in the East Coast. Yeah. Sure. That's for certain. Uh, we're talking about beneficiaries here, Ethan. Mm-hmm. And uh, so some of the mistakes they talk about is first not naming a beneficiary.
2: Yeah. There's something else about that, and they they pointed. This is what they pointed out in the article, but we added a couple of things just a minute ago. But um, another thing, if you don't put a beneficiary, and this is this happens sometimes, um, people forget or they open a new accounts and didn't update the beneficiary information, or maybe the beneficiary is predeceased, the account holder. Those things can happen. Um, If if those things, no nothing's listed or a, a live person isn't listed as beneficiary, then the the IRA will go to the estate, basically. Okay. And then you would think, well, that's no big deal because in my will then I have listed these beneficiaries that I want to have. Right. Well, the issue is this. When you, you don't designate a specific beneficiary on the IRA and then the estate is the beneficiary, you lose the ability to do what's the, what we call the stretch payouts. Okay. You know, to, um, um, basically for each person to receive their share of the IRA and then take the required minimum distributions over their lifetime. Yeah. In an estate situation, the person who is the oldest is how they're going to calculate the RMDs, the, the required minimum calculation, required minimum distributions from the inherited IRA. All right. And that can mean a big deal. Like, if say, uh, um, maybe um, uh, in a situation you have a, an elderly person who's passed away, and they've listed maybe their uh, have their grandkids maybe as beneficiaries in the IRA in their will. Well, one of the grandkids maybe kids maybe maybe they're forty years old or something, and the other ones are just born. You know, maybe one-year-old. All idea that Well, then the one-year-old is going to have to take the required minimum distributions based on the 40-year-old's life expectancy, Okay, which means you're going to have to accelerate a lot of income that you would otherwise
1: would not care to do. So they're wording him. this in a way that almost would lead you to believe that you don't even get that benefit, that it would immediately all become taxable. That's
2: also possible. Okay. Yeah, that is possible. It depends what's in the estate documents, right? Okay.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the the two issues here by not naming a bit beneficiary, if I'm getting this correctly is number one, if you don't, you may be subjecting this asset to a probate process, which yes. may be painful. And it could be painful. Take time and cost a little more. Yeah. And then number two, you lose some of the the tax uh, benefits of being able to take an IRA that was say was pre tax money that went into right. this IRA. And traditionally if the person lived to be a hundred starting in age seventy, they're gonna have to start taking required, but they slowly start drawing out and by doing that over time, it may be a situation where the tax is paid over, you know, thirty well, years exactly. in that case, and potentially at a lower marginal tax bracket than if it was all removed in one lump sum. Yeah, almost certainly. Uh, or be somebody case. inheriting it at the peak of their earnings, because now they're inheriting it. Mm-hmm. Has to pay it in a very short period, so it adds to their taxable income and increases their tax taxable state. Right. Two things about that you want to avoid by not. It's very important then not to do it. And that's separate from the other issue that's not listed here, which is just getting the money of the people that you want. Yeah, right. Right? Right? Because if you didn't have an estate plan, right, or it's not clearly addressed, um, the way way you may have intended or would like that money to be distributed may not be – won't be done if there's nobody listed. Right. If
2: nobody listed and you don't have an estate like a will, for example, then the state law will dictate where your money goes. And that may not be what you want to have happen.
1: All right. Yeah. What's next?
2: It uh, looks like here, not listing contingent beneficiaries or contemplating disclaimers. Um, yeah, typically, you, most most of the time, if you're married anyway, you have your spouse be your, your primary uh, beneficiary. Uh, but if your spouse predeceases you, for example, then you, what would happen in the event you passed away? Well, it would go to a contingent beneficiary or a secondary beneficiary. That's how that normally would go. Um, so it's important to have those as well for the same reasons we just
1: talked about. So basically, the concept here is: if you don't, you wind up back in the first place, which is you you're not. Same issues with not naming one, right? Is this basically the issue here if you, of not having a contingent in the event that the person you listed first, it's a primary, pass away, and so you're right back into that same boat.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: All right, and then it also says here, which I guess is important to um, you know, if, if if spouses
2: pass away at the same time, um. Oh, am I misreading that? Ken?
1: I'm sorry. Yeah, basically, if if um, it seems to me that the real trigger would be though that the primary beneficiary passed away and you never changed it, it or didn't have a contingent, is the same if you both pass away, right? Yeah. yeah. Because it's just going to go through probate, um, and and then you're on to the next thing of how that's going to get distributed. Right. So I also see here naming the contingent beneficiaries lets the primary
2: beneficiary execute a qualified disclaimer as well, which is sometimes used as an estate, estate planning technique to avoid unnecessary estate taxes to make sure, at least in the old days, where you had to, each spouse have their own um, uh, federal exclusion amount to use. So the primary
1: has the ability to, to disclaim and pass, let it pass through to the That's contingent? correct.
2: Okay. And the reason is because
1: you, you have to physically literally take, open a new account
2: and then receive the money. If you don't have constructive receipt of the money, it's, in other words, it stays in the, in the IRA of the deceased okay. until you decide to where it goes, then it's no problem. You, can ha- you have the option to take
1: it or not take it. Okay. For estate planning purposes, you may want to do one or the other. That's good. That's, that's really good to know. Yeah. Lacking specifics in beneficiary designations. So we don't have a lot of time, Then though. I think we should, we'll click through these here. Okay, go ahead. But uh, your clients may uh, list children. As beneficiaries, but include, Mm -hmm, including specific names may be more appropriate. So you can't just, don't just write down children. Right. Is what they're saying. Be very specific. And most of the forms we see, they want the person's name and um, birth date, social security number, social security number, if possible. Uh, The more specific you can be, the better. Yes, absolutely. So that way you don't have to get into a legal issue later trying to determine, well, what do we mean by that and who Mm -hmm. was this person? Right. Failing to keep the designations up to date. So simply not updating as your life is changing, right? Perhaps certain beneficiaries have died or their relationship with the account holder has changed. Yeah, or if uh, there's been
2: divorces and remarriages and those sorts of things as well. Yeah. That's fairly common.
1: All right. Failing to keep beneficiary designation forms on file. Clients should keep copies of updated beneficiary designation forms on file. The record's... Of an acquired custodial company can easily be lost or destroyed when a new firm assumes ownership. That's interesting. (laughs) Is that a variable? It's certainly possible. It's possible. Hopefully less and less now. I would think. But 20 years ago, probably more common. Yeah. um, or longer. Certainly makes sense to keep a copy or have your advisor keep, have access to keep a copy. Makes sense for sure. Yeah. And more importantly, let the beneficiaries know. How to gain access to that data. You better believe it. Yeah. Not considering the financial or emotional readiness of beneficiaries. Uh, The money that designated beneficiaries receive from IRAs is unrestricted in most cases. Clients can't control who gets the amount of money or when Uh, or how to limit the money they use unless advanced restrictions are put in place. One restriction is naming a trust as beneficiary and drafting terms that stipulate when individuals receive their share of the dough. Trusts are often used when beneficiaries can't manage their finances or lack, much like uh, Ethan here, self-control <laughs> <laughs> Right. when it comes to sound effects. He has no self-control or in a complex family. Um, so now you're getting into some pretty complicated stuff that needs to. we need to disclaim. You need to talk to an attorney, yeah. an advisor, and a tax person when you start um, getting involved with naming the trust, right? Yeah, I think if you – a lot of people just list – I've seen it before. List, hey, to my estate. Uh, rather than naming a specific
2: beneficiary. So uh, the issues we talked about, that you're, then you're just having the, the IRA go to the estate, and then obviously there are, we talked about the issues with that. But the same thing holds true with a trust, identifying a, a trust as a beneficiary of, of an IRA potentially anyway. There can be some hang-ups with that, particularly when it comes to um, not allowing the, the stretch benefits, you know, taking the yeah. I, minimum required distributions over a longer period. Those usually get shortened in the use of a trust.
1: Well, certainly if you thought someone was going to blow the money in a single year on... That trumps Whatever. You. That's a reason to do yeah. it. Reason so it to makes it in a lot trip. of sense. Well, thanks for tuning in to Empirical Investing Radio. I think That's all the time we have, Ethan. So we'll be back next week, Thursday at 2 p.m. Pacific time. That sounds great. If you want to give us a call throughout the week, call our firm here at 1-800-923-4307. Ask for Ken Smith or Ethan Brugge. we we'll would be happy to talk to you. Have a great week.
0: We hope you've enjoyed Empirical Investing Radio with Ken Smith and Ethan Broga. Please join us again next Thursday afternoon at 5 p.m. Eastern Time and 2 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. And for more information about Empirical Investing Radio, please call 800-923-4307. We'll see you next week.